in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first four verses. We want everybody to be able to follow along, so the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle. If you'll get their attention, then they will get a copy of the Scriptures to you so you can follow along as we look at Hebrews chapter 2. I knew a man who planted a church several years back, and he did so with great enthusiasm on his part, and there was great enthusiasm on the part of those who supported him. The first years of that church were heady days indeed. There was growth in attendance, there were people saved and were baptized and growing in the Lord, and a new impressive facility was even constructed. But as inevitably happens, living in a fallen world, there came difficulties, difficulties with people and difficulties with just circumstances and just life in a fallen world. And unknown to anyone at that time, except to him, this man began to seek comfort from the increasing pressures, not in Christ, not in Christ's church, but where he had found comfort before he had come to Jesus in the past, in alcohol. And he changed ministry locations, but as is always the case, a change of address does not equate to a change of heart. And so we can run from the circumstance, but the problem still goes, because our hearts are always the problem. And so he fell into the practice there and is no longer in the ministry. I had a seminary classmate who, by most accounts, including mine, was the most gifted young man that we had. It was no surprise that his church grew to capacity and he was sought as a conference speaker. But he, too, allowed the pressures of life and ministry to pull him from Christ, and he sought pleasure and refuge in a soft voice and a gentle touch other than that of his wife. And he is no longer in ministry. A church planting conference that I've attended for several years this past summer had to change one of its keynote speakers due to discovery of the same thing. Now, of course, you may sit there and say, well, we'd all be better off if it weren't for those pastors. But, of course, it's not just pastors. These are just the most sensational, and they affect more people, to be sure. But similar stories can be recounted of just regular folks who at one time were on fire for Christ, or at least it seemed, as they served him diligently. And they're now out of church completely. And they're in places that they never dreamed. I served with a man many years ago that I loved then and I love now. He and his wife were very active and faithful servants. He moved out of state some years ago, and I recently received word that he's contemplating divorce. He's not serving the Lord. He's not even in church at all. A young lady that I had the privilege of teaching in our high school class at church many years ago was one of the most respected, well-thought-of young people we had. She received an award for her exemplary character at her Christian school. She graduated. She went off to Bible college. 
And when she was home on that first break, she began to exhibit behavior that none of us at least had seen before. It turned out later that others knew about it. She got pregnant out of wedlock. And she married an unsaved man. If you've been a believer and serving the Lord for any length of time, you could probably relate stories of folks who at one time were on fire. And we would even use that language. We would say, that guy or that gal is on fire for the Lord. And now they have no interest in spiritual things. Now, I gave some examples that I know of personally. And I did that not, friends, to gossip or embarrass anyone. The truth is, if you didn't know any of these before, you don't know them now by what I've said. It's true that I could have told stories of people that I don't know who are just out there in the evangelical world and whose stories you can find in sermons and books, people I've never known personally. But I want you to know, friends, that the potential for spiritual failure is as close as our own hearts. It's close to home. It is not just out there. It is not just the stories you hear and read about other people. I'm susceptible to spiritual failure. You are susceptible to spiritual failure. Your spouse and your children are susceptible. Now, before I move on, let me just ask you to consider, do you really believe that? It's easy to say, yes, I'm susceptible. Yes, we're susceptible. But do you really believe that? Because if you really believe that, you will heed the warnings that we're going to see in God's holy word today. What do all of these people have in common? Well, the stories I've told and others you know involve people of different ages, vocations, circumstances, but they all have one thing in common. Before they ever failed, they drifted. They just slowly but surely drifted. None of these people woke up suddenly one day and just turned to alcohol. None of them. Or just turned to adultery or divorce or pleasure. Before any of them did that, they had been drifting slowly, subtly, imperceptibly even, drifting from their spiritual moorings and doing so for some time. They drifted rather than heeding the warning that's found in our passage in Hebrews chapter 2. Notice what it says. Verse 1. We must pay... Careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And I want you to notice the therefore in that, in that verse. Because the therefore connects what is said in this warning about drifting away to what has been said before. Therefore, based upon what was said in chapter 1, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, from whom have we heard? Well, if you were with us last week as we began 
our thematic study through the book of Hebrews, we have heard from none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The first verse says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken and He has spoken to us through His Son. And then goes on to describe his son, the heir of all things. The exact representation of his being. And so therefore, because we have his voice, because he has spoken, therefore we must pay very careful attention that we do not drift away. And this one who has spoken is not just another spiritual being out there, not just an angel. Angels are pretty cool. They can do things we can't do, at least right now, until we get with the Lord. Angels are really neat. They're a subject of a lot of attention. But you know what? There isn't an angel anywhere in God's creation that compares to the Son of God. And that's why he's called better than angels in verse 4. That's why in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1, You have a comparison and a contrast between the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, and angelic beings. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is superior to every one of them. And we have now heard from him. And so our question then for us is, have we seen who Christ is? The Bible calls him the Son of God because he has the very character of God, because he is God, having come in the flesh. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, he's the heir of all things. He's the one who made the world. In verse 3, he's the brightness of the glory of God, the exact image of his person, the Bible says. Chapter 1 says he's the one who upholds all things by the power of his word. We saw last week, he's the one who purged, purified our sins. He's the one who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4 says he's better than angels. Verse 6, he is the... Greek word protokos, he is the chief of all. In verse 6, he's the one whom the angels worship. Verse 7, the angels are his servants. In verse 8, he's called God, who is forever and ever. He's the one in verse 9, who's anointed above all others. In verse 10, he's the Lord of all creation. This is who Jesus is. And that is why chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay very careful attention. To the one from whom we have heard, lest we find ourselves drifting away. Now verse 1 speaks of drifting away. What's it mean? The word that's translated drifting away was used of a ring that would go on a finger and just slip off. I must tell you that I wish my finger were small enough. I keep my ring on at all times, and proudly so. But it's too fat for it to slip off. But if we're a bit thinner, that's the word, that's the idea. Just sliding off, just sliding away. But most commonly, it was used in New Testament times as a nautical metaphor. It was used of shipping. And a ship that would come into dock. And rather than come into the dock and anchor where it was supposed to, the ship would simply drift on by. And that's what all the people that I described earlier did. They drifted on by the anchor. 
And who is the anchor? None other than the one described in chapter 1, our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to understand today, as I say in your outline, notice the take-home truth, that failure to remain close to Christ brings subtle but severe consequences. This is a reality in everyone's life. It is the potential for every last one of us to just drift on by Christ, drift away from Christ, move from our spiritual moorings. And therefore I say in the first point in your outline, we must beware of this danger of spiritual drift. And what causes it? What causes us to drift? Well, there are a number of currents tides that move the ships of our lives away from the anchor that is Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few. One is just time. Over time, you're going to encounter things that are going to challenge you and me and are going to reveal things about us that we did not know. And so you may think you have it going well now. But then you encounter some circumstance that you've never been in before. And you find reactions and actions on your part that you never knew you were capable of. Just time, living in a fallen world, that will happen and thus makes us susceptible to drifting away. Another current, another tide that moves the ship of our lives away from the anchor of Christ is just familiarity with the truth. There develops a been there, done that attitude. Let's be honest, friends. How many of us, how many of us came together today and said, I absolutely cannot wait to open the word of God and see what he has for me today? So many of us have grown so cold that we simply go through the motions because we're familiar with the truth. I've heard it. I've done it. It no longer excites me. Another current is a tide that can pull us away if we're not careful is just busyness. We're busy in life. We're busy in our family life. We're busy in our work life. We're busy in church life. And it can give us a false sense that we're close to Christ because we're doing stuff. But did you know, friend, that it's possible to do stuff and even do stuff in the Lord's work and not be close to Christ and not be anchored to Christ. You all remember in Revelation chapter 2 that Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And one of the churches to whom Jesus spoke as he is speaking to us through the author of Hebrews in this book. He spoke to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 and he said this to them famously, I know your deeds. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary. What a marvelous commendation. If it stopped there. But unfortunately, Jesus' words do not stop there for this church. Because he says to them, nevertheless, even despite all of that, I have somewhat against you. Despite the many great things that you have done, I hold this against you. 
You have forsaken your first love. That's a good definition of drifting, isn't it? I found myself over a period of time now drifting. Or a church finds itself drifting over a period of time so that the Lord who warns us, pay very careful attention, therefore that you don't drift away, then pronounces, you have lost your first love. There are people here, every person here is susceptible to this, as I've said, there are people here right now who undoubtedly, undoubtedly are in that situation. In a group this size, it is impossible in a fallen world that there are not people who have forsaken their first love and who are just going through the motions and who have grown cold on the Lord who bought them with his own blood. There are many, many warnings, friends, in the Bible with regard to this issue of sliding away. Let me give you some of them. You all remember this warning? Let him... Who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. You see, we think we stand because we're busy. Because we're doing stuff. But there are all sorts of warning signs all over the place that we've left our first love. Our hearts are not in it. When we talk about the Lord, if we talk about him at all, we talk critically. When we talk about our brothers and sisters... If we talk about them at all, we talk about them critically. And it's a sure sign that our hearts have grown cold on Jesus and we're in danger of drifting away. And so we must beware of the danger of spiritual drift. But notice I say in your outline this as well. We should be aware of the consequences of spiritual drift. Here's what verses 2 and 3 say. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The writer of Hebrews is saying that what you have been given, what I have been given, compared to what had gone before, is infinitely greater because God has now spoken in His Son. And yet... Even as great as that is, God punished every disobedience in the past, even when they had lesser pronouncements of their salvation than we have. Every violation received its just punishment, verse 2. And it was a message, verse 2, spoken by angels. That's why the Bible says this. The angels spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses received living words to pass on. And so the reason that Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2 says that a message was spoken by angels is because the Bible teaches that an angel actually was instrumental in giving the commandments to Moses that he gave to God's people. And every violation of that law, an inferior law, it turns out, the writer of Hebrews will say, to the revelation we have in Jesus, but even violations of that, did not go unpunished, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so here's what the Bible warns. God was not pleased 
with most of them, those who received this gift through the mediation of Moses and angels. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And this is written in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, friends, telling us about what happened to people in the first part of your Bible. Here's why. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. What kinds of evil? What sorts of evil could I set my heart on? Could you set your heart on that will cause you to drift away from Christ and forsake your first love? Well, the passage goes on. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And what were the consequences of idolatry and sexual immorality? In one day, 23,000 of them died. Would you say God takes this seriously, friends? And I remind you that it's the same God who is on the throne today that did these things then. And the passage goes on. Do not be idolaters. Do not commit sexual immorality. And we must not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. You say, okay, I'm good with that. I mean, the good news is I'm not an idolater. I haven't committed sexual immorality, not so fast. You remember that Jesus said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you. If you look with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already, not so fast. Well, I'm not an idolater. Again, not so fast. Ezekiel chapter 14 tells us that idols begin and dwell in our hearts and that our hearts are veritable idol factories. We can make them out of anyone or anything. They were idolaters and they were adulterers. And they tested the Lord. But then it goes on to say this. And do not grumble. As some of them did. And what happened? They were killed by a destroying angel. It would appear God does not look favorably upon idolatry, adultery, testing him, or grumbling. So ask yourself, dear friend, how do you use your tongue? What springs from your heart and what does it reveal about your heart in the way you talk? Grumbling, complaining. And so they were sometimes judged were these folks whose examples are given to us as warnings. And now the writer of Hebrews warns us yet again. They were sometimes judged through direct action. An avenging angel. Snakes. 23,000 die in one day, sometimes through direct action, summarily judged, sometimes, though, through the legal process. So here's what the Bible says. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside, stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Aren't you thankful you don't live in that day? The truth is, if God executed some summary judgment upon his church, our ranks would thin very quickly. Why does God say you must excise this from the body? Because God teaches and experience confirms that a little leaven leavens the entire lump. And the grumbling and the complaining not just affects you, not just affects your family, it affects the family of God. But why involve the whole, the whole assembly God? The Bible tells us God wants everyone to know the consequences of sin so that, quote, others may fear. So, friends, we must beware of the tendency to spiritual drift. We must be aware of the consequences of spiritual drift. Lives that are left just floating aimlessly out there, no longer anchored to Christ. And God issues very severe punishment upon those who would ignore his word, his voice. Especially those who would ignore his voice through not the mediator Moses or an angel, but through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We must pay more careful attention. Because if the word that was mediated through angels found every violation receiving its just punishment, verse 3, then how shall we escape? If we neglect much greater gifts and salvation, the answer is we will not. You will not. I will not. And you know what you have to do in order to find yourself in that situation? Nothing. I mean that. Nothing. You see, the word is neglect. All you have to do is be passive about your spiritual life. And you'll drift. All you have to do is stop being active, proactive, about remaining anchored to Jesus. And you will drift. C.S. Lewis said this. I suppose if you were to ask a hundred people who have rejected Christianity. Very few of them would have been reasoned out of it by a logical argument. Most of them would have simply drifted away. What do you have to do to find yourself in this situation? Just do what many of you are doing now. Nothing. Just keep going through the motions. Keep failing to examine your own heart and dealing with the words that come out of your mouth, the testing, the grumbling, the idols of your heart manifest in so many ways, the sexual immorality, if not acted upon, thought about. And you will drift. And you will not be an exception to the rule. And what are the reasons for this? What are the reasons that God looks at this so severely? Finally, in verse 4. Excuse me, middle of verse 3. This salvation was announced by the Lord. 
It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so what makes this salvation so great that we most surely will not escape if we do what they did? Do nothing. Just drift. What makes it so great? It was announced by the Lord himself. And so the Bible says there is one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time announced by the son of God, God having come in the flesh. What makes it so great? It's mediated by God himself. But not only that. It was not only announced by the Lord, it was confirmed by his apostles. The end of verse three tells us that it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And I will just say here quickly in passing, this is one of those several verses in your New Testament that is the reason that we are not what we call charismatic. It's the reason that we believe some of the apostolic, what we call the apostolic gifts don't happen now. It's because they had a special office, and this is one of those verses that says as much. It was confirmed to us by who? By the guys who heard him directly, who were with him. And so we have the testimony of the Lord himself, the confirmation of his apostles. And then we have the accompanying mighty acts of the Lord, signs and wonders and miracles. And so, friend, God is saying this. I have given you every reason to believe. I have given you every reason to continue to believe, to continue to be anchored to your spiritual moorings in Jesus Christ. I have given you warning, warning in the first part of your Bible, in the example of others, warning now in your New Testament. Pay careful attention then to your own life and your own tendency to spiritual drift. You have every reason to heed that warning and remain attached And close to Jesus Christ. But if we fail to heed that warning, there is every reason for us to be held accountable. And we will. So what do we do as we conclude? We honestly examine our hearts. And say, what is my heart manifesting in the way I talk, in my attitude, in my enthusiasm, my zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ? And you be honest before God about that. And the Bible uses a word called confess. You confess it to him. And the word confess means this. Literally, it means to say the same thing. That's what the word means. So you are saying to God, I am saying to God the same thing that God says about it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't say, yeah, I'm a little cold on the Lord. The Lord says to one of the other churches, I will spew you out of my mouth, you remember. There's no such thing as a little cold on the Lord. And so you don't sugarcoat it. You say what he says, Lord, I have idols of my heart. Things and people that are more important to me than you. I, Lord, have feasted my mind upon things that are immoral. And equate to adultery in your mind. Lord, I have used my tongue in evil ways. Grumbling, complaining, gossiping, slandering. You confess. You confess to him and you stop doing this and then we will quit. 
you stop perverse ways of confessing. Now, here's what I mean about perverse ways of confessing. We're supposed to confess to God. Say the same thing that he says about it. That's the Bible's definition of confession. But here's the way we often confess. We confess with bitterness. Here's what I mean by that. You know what bitterness is? It's confessing other people's sins to myself. Confessing other people's sins to myself. I don't like the way they did that. I don't like the way they treated me. I get mad, and so I confess their sins to myself. I rehearse it over and over again. Bitterness. It's a perverse form of confession. Or anger. I don't like my circumstances. I'm confessing my sins at God rather than to God. I'm angry at my circumstances, and I'm angry at the God of those circumstances. There's bitterness. There's anger. And here's a third perverse way of confessing gossip. I confess other people's sins to other people. This is what they did to me. This is what I don't like about what they did to me. I do it in overt ways. I do it in subtle ways. But nonetheless, I do it. And here's what God says. Don't confess to yourself. Don't confess at me. Confess to me. Don't confess to other people. I invite you, draw near to me. Confess, and I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's confess. Let's bow before the Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I am lost without you. Without you, Lord God, I would be lost and undone, without hope and without God in the world. But because of Jesus, because of your great love and mercy, I have a relationship with the God who made me, the Savior who died for me, all because of you, not because of me. And I confess and I am absolutely weak before you. And I'm, I'm incapable of doing all that you require. But Lord, you have done what's necessary in order to, for me and for us to be what you desire. You've shown your initiative in sending the Lord Jesus and in giving us your Holy Spirit and in bringing us to your church. All of these resources, the Word of God, the people of God, are at our disposal. They've come to us through the person of the Lord Jesus, God's final word to His creation. We have all of this. I'm not capable, but you've given the gifts to do this. And yet, Lord, I confess that I drift. And I drift by neglect. And I have brothers and sisters here who drift by virtue of neglect, been there, done that, familiarity with the truth, losing our zeal and enthusiasm for God and the things of God. Lord, we fear the pronouncement, you have lost your first love. We fear 
what has become of so many others who have shipwrecked their lives may become of us. And so I pray that deep, real confession is taking place in this sacred moment. I ask your Holy Spirit to move on the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to redraw us to yourself. And thank you for loving us so much to give us this warning. Thank you for loving me so much that before I continue to drift, you say, Ken, come back. I love you. I continue to love you. Come back. I pray that there are people coming back right now. To your honor and your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.